I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mickey Thomas-Terry, a lecturer in the music department at Howard University, who's here to tell us all about his late friend and colleague, George Walker. Born in D.C., Walker, also a piano prodigy, was the first black composer to receive the Pulitzer Prize for Music in 1996. Dr. Terry tells us about Walker's life, personality, challenges, and three works you need to listen to. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Terry. Tell us about the last conversation you had with George Walker before he passed away in 2018. Well, it was just a few weeks before he passed and I spoke to him and his voice was a little weak, but um, I could hear him. And one of the things that he said in the conversation that stuck with me is the fact that he told me, which I think really was expressing what he hoped his legacy to be. And that was, he said, I want people to play my music. I want people to play my music. I want people to play my music. He said it three consecutive times. And that was just completely unforgettable, indelibly engraved in my memory. And when he died, it replayed in my head several times. So that was the one thing that really was important to him. He wanted people to play his music, to know his music, and appreciate his music. Well, in the spirit of wanting his music to be played, let's start with one of his earliest works, the lyric for strings. Tell us a little bit about this work. Well, the lyric for strings was written in 1941. He actually uh, was writing a string quartet, and he was at Oberlin Conservatory. And he had finished the first movement of the string quartet, and he was thinking about writing a contrasting slow movement. And he told me that he remembered his composition teacher at Curtis telling him uh, at one point that Barber's Adagio for Strings was inspired by Beethoven's String Quartet, Opus 135. But of course, this is before he had uh, studied at Curtis. But during this time, he had discovered that his grandmother, his paternal grandmother, had passed. It was, once again, 1941. And he returned uh, to Philadelphia after the funeral and completed three movements of his quartet there was an opportunity for it to be performed by a string orchestra that was comprised of Curtis students uh, for a series of radio broadcasts that was being sponsored by a bank there in Philadelphia. So George Walker suggested that he could arrange his slow movement of the quartet for string orchestra, which he did. Initially, it was called Lament for String Orchestra. Later, he changed the name to Adagio for String Orchestra but he thought that title was too prosaic and unoriginal, so he renamed it finally Lyric for Strings. And this is dedicated to his grandmother, Malvina King. 
And it's such a beautiful work, and what a great dedication to to his grandmother. This one, it's different than a lot of other George Walker works that we'll be listening to later on. But what strikes me about this one, with each repeated listening, I become a little bit more curious or just kind of infatuated with the orchestration that Walker's doing, the way he's choosing what instruments play which notes, the uh, the voicing, because you can listen to it and it's just, you can kind of sit back and get lost in it. But listening more critically, you hear some pretty extraordinary things he's doing with the voicing, especially low down, creating whole new textures and ideas in music that I think kind of transfers later on with some of his orchestral works that sound like he's literally playing the orchestra like an instrument. And all the way decades ago, again, this is the mid-1940s, right? Yes. So already we kind of see that, in my opinion, that, that path being played forward. But it's just an absolute beautiful work to listen to, isn't it? It really is. So he was only 24 years old and still a student when he wrote that, and that's quite a mature work. He was also a piano prodigy, right? And he enrolled at Oberlin Conservatory when he was 14 years old. So what was his introduction to music like and then his education? Well, first of all, George had a younger sibling. She was two years his junior, and her name was Frances, Frances Walker. And Francis also was a child prodigy in piano. So you had two child prodigies growing up in this household. Francis ended up becoming a very brilliant um, pianist and virtuoso. She had studied at Oberlin Conservatory. And she ultimately returned to Oberlin and became the very first Black tenured faculty member at Oberlin Conservatory. And so they both had received instruction from a piano teacher by the name of Mrs. Henry. This was when uh, she was four and a half when she started her piano studies, George was five. But because George had already started piano, she basically started to take those things that he had worked on and work on them herself. So, but both children ultimately went to the Howard University Preparatory School or junior department, they referred to it as. And of course, that department is now defunct, but it was alive and well for many years. And students would go there and learn the rudiments of theory and music history, and they would study uh, instruments, in their case, piano. And so that was really a part of their background. And George Walker uh, initially didn't even really consider concentrating on piano or even music until he was getting ready to go to college. And then, you know, he thought, well, piano would be something that he would like to study in as well as music. And so uh, piano was what it was. Now, um, in his early years, of course, he was from Washington, D.C. There were not a lot of opportunities for blacks in terms of education. Racism was alive and well, and this was in the Jim Crow era. And so there were a lot of institutions that did not accept blacks. Uh, you could not matriculate at places like Peabody Conservatory and um, most other predominantly white institutions of that day. So 
Oberlin Conservatory, though, was the first collegiate institution or institution of higher learning in this country that would admit blacks. And that was uh, starting in the 1840s. So all blacks pretty much knew about Oberlin. And that was where a lot of them went. But there weren't many schools that would accept blacks. New England Conservatory would uh, there in Boston. But there weren't a lot, in, particularly in terms of music. There just weren't a lot of opportunities. Just to stop for a moment and uh, explain, I think, uh, for people that don't quite understand, when you are a musician and you're going to school or conservatory to pursue that, this isn't something you decide when you're now going to college. Okay, what should I do? Should I major in uh, maths or, or something else? For him, when he's a teenager, thinking, you know, maybe I would like to do piano and, and study that, and then being able to do that and go into a university, it's extraordinary, or the conservatory, because... If you play the piano and you're going to a conservatory for piano, the vast majority of people, that was a decision that was made a long time ago. They've dedicated everything since they were basically a toddler almost. And here's Walker, who has these abilities and and can play the piano at this level. And then he's going to school and thinking, well, what do I want to do exactly? That's a that's a choice that or an option, I think, that most musicians don't quite have, especially at that age. I wasn't even serious about my own instrument, I think, when I was 14 years old. You're right about that. Uh, it's really quite amazing. And um, when he went to, and he does something similar to this again, in terms of his decision uh, to go to the Curtis Institute. Uh, when he went to Oberlin, uh, he, of course, studied piano. That was his major. And he said it wasn't really until his senior year that he had really considered going to uh, the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. And he said it was basically brought on by the fact that uh, Rudolf Serkin, who was one of the finest pianists of his day, happened to give a recital at Oberlin Conservatory during Walker's senior year. And he heard him, and he was so uh, impressed that he decided that he wanted to go and study with him there at the Curtis Institute. And he did do this, and Walker ultimately, when he graduated, from Curtis in 1945, became the first black ever to graduate from that institution. And this is where he was also starting his studies with composition? Yes, it was. Walker had, even towards the end of his career, always considered himself primarily as a pianist. Composition was a secondary interest, and he made a comment one time, and he said, and I'm going to quote here this, comment that he made, he said, I had so much energy that I wanted to do something else after spending hours practicing at the keyboard, end quote. So he decided to focus on composition. And he also believed that composition was the best way by which one could improve their interpretive skills. So that's what he decided to do. So he went to Curtis and he had a double major in piano performance and music composition. It's another extraordinary moment of thinking when he's a teenager, yeah, I'll study piano, and he, he goes and does that. Now thinking for composition, yes, a lot of us, I took um, composing for non-majors, and it's great. It teaches you a lot about appreciating what composers do, and you, you learn how to, um, you know, you write some music. But for Walker, 
then he's now in his 20s and he says, you know, I'm going to start doing this because after playing piano for 10 hours, I need something else to do. And then he's doing all of that. And you hear the work that he's producing, like that lyric for strings that we heard, that already sounds fully mature. There's a lot of works you hear from composers when they're very young, and it's quite nice. And you can hear, yes, this could have been done differently. This could have been put here. But when you listen to that work, like the lyric for strings, it's not only all just there, but you're kind of listening more and more, trying to find even more things. And he's still a student at this time. Yes. So after Curtis, he goes to France, right, to study with Nadia Boulanger. Well, ultimately he did. Um, or did he go to, when did he go to Eastman? He went to Eastman uh, in January of 1955. His father had just passed, Dr. Artmel George Walker. He had just passed. He was an MD. And he uh, decided to go to the Eastman School of Music. The Doctor of Musical Arts, uh, that Doctorate of Musical Arts program had just been developed, and he decided that he wanted to receive his doctorate in piano. So he went there, and he not only received his doctorate in piano, but he received his second artist diploma uh, while he was there, and he graduated in 1956, and he became the first Black also to receive uh, a DMA or a Doctorate of Musical Arts uh, from the Eastman School of Music there in Rochester. And was it before this that he was studying with Nadia Boulanger? He studied with Boulanger. And just to kind of preface this for everyone, if you know the name Boulanger, you already know. But if you don't, she was one of the most influential musicians, composers, teachers, conductors, especially teacher of the 20th century, the biggest names you can think of, most of the time went through her studio at some point. And George Walker was one of those. Yes, he had studied with Boulanger during the 50s, but this actually was after he had uh, finished at Eastman. George Walker had spent time earlier doing two things. One, the attempt to start a concert career as a pianist. And then he ultimately went into teaching. So he was really busy doing those things after that period uh, when he left uh, Curtis. And when he went to study with Nadia Boulanger, I read that for her, most of her students, they were required to take courses or do things to make up for what I assume she thought were deficiencies in their playing or their, or their knowledge or theory. George Walker was exempt from this, I believe, right? He didn't have to do any of that. Basically, he walked in, showed her some music, and she was immediately taken back and was just, well, he's not a student. He's basically a colleague. And from right away, he didn't have to take those extra courses, and they were just working straight on with composition and ideas. Exactly. Some of her, many of her students that came through, and she taught many famous people, Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, they had deficiencies maybe in counterpoint or in, in harmony. And so she would have them do exercises. But as you mentioned, he brought copies of his music, a particularly a, a song that he had written and a, a copy of his first piano sonata and some other works. And he says, you, you know, basically you're not a student, you know, and she's, you know, helping him and encouraging him to 
refine his art and and continue composing. And so he didn't have to go through many of the exercises that most of her students had to endure. That song, The Bereaved Maid, I think is the one Boulanger first saw, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. Thinking of George Walker at this point, he's reached this stage where he is this fantastic composer and extraordinary pianist, finishing studies with Nadia Boulanger. It sounds like he may have not even gotten to this point if it wasn't for maybe his first piano teacher who instilled some of these values of of working on technique and just, I guess, perfecting the basics before moving on. So you don't have to have those moments where you have to do kind of those remedial courses to become better at counterpoints or in harmony. It sounds like this journey to Boulanger and then his continuing career may be in in part due to the great education he had here in Washington. Well, I believe that that is correct. But I think a lot of credit goes to his father, Dr. Artmel George Theophilus Walker. His father was, first of all, he's from Jamaica. He came to this country uh, penniless, and he decided to go to medical school, and he graduated from Temple University in Philadelphia, the medical school there, and practiced here in Washington. And his father was very, very work-oriented, as was his mother. And so both children had that influence, and they both have spoken about it in interviews, that the parents were very, very exacting. And they expected excellence, propriety. They were very no-nonsense individuals. And they passed that on to both of their children, both to George and to his younger sister, Frances. And so I think that is one of the things that happened, because Francis was also an excellent pupil, uh, very brilliant, and they both were. Let's go to another piece of music. From one of his first works, The Lyric for Strings, let's hear about one of his last, the Symphonia Number no. 4, completed in 2012 when I think he was 90. Tell us about this one, because it sounds quite different from The Lyric for Strings, but I think there's already some similarities we can see in this music 70 years apart. Well, this particular work, there are five of them. The actual last symphonia was number five. That's the one that he had started when he was in his 90s. But um, this particular one came out in 2012. And it has, among other things, two uh, Negro spirituals that are quoted. And George Walker, first of all, wanted to have an association, something pertaining to Americana in a lot of his works. And many times he would use Negro spirituals. However, they would be put in such a way that it would be fragments of it, or it might be an augmentation or diminution or whatever, or in such a way that you wouldn't necessarily recognize it. I remember one time when he was... Um, sitting beside me, because usually I attended several of his performances when he was in this area. And we were at, I think this it was the National Academy of Sciences several years ago, and they were doing a performance of some of his music, and there was a violin sonata. And he told me that I think it was the spiritual, let us break bread together. He said, that is in there, but good luck finding it. You won't. <laughs> and so... Uh, 
And he was right because I had no idea. I was oblivious to it. Had he not told me that, I would not have known. So, but he was very, very interested in form. He was interested in trying to have different types of effects uh, in his music. I remember when he came to Washington in 2012 and um, he came to Howard University and I was not teaching there at that particular time, but I sort of became the university's unofficial liaison to him because I found out he was going to be here. And so I spent a lot of time with him and took him places and, and went back and forth with him. And I was seated beside him when this work was being performed uh, by the National Symphony at Crampton Auditorium there on Howard University campus. And I still remember with great uh, glee now and, and, and a smile uh, when they had intermission. I was sitting or seated at the, on the aisle and he was one end directly beside me. I had the good sense to jump up immediately and run. And I am glad I did because it was like a cattle call. I would have gotten stampeded. Oh, yeah. People were trying to get to him. And uh, so I remember at intermission and at the end of the program, I very quickly uh, made my way away from him. So, and people just flocked to him. So I remember that with great glee. But that is a great piece. I really uh, like the Symphonia Number no. 4. It's wonderful, and this is what I was talking about when it feels like he is able to treat the orchestra sometimes as a group of musicians, but oftentimes as a cohesive whole, its own instrument that he is playing. Going back to the voicings and, and the way he's able to combine notes in the lyric for strings, he's still, it feels like 70 years later, he's approaching 90. He is still in that same experimentation step like, just how can I make this sound if I put this note here, even all those decades later? And it's always good to remind people listening to modern or contemporary music uh, that it's not random. A lot of listeners think, well, this is kind of random. It sounds like noise, right? A lot of criticism that I think modern art can face at times. But this is not random. The music here, it feels like he's almost with a scalpel carved out every single note in dynamic it feels very exact. I love how he uses percussion to kind of add some brightness and shimmering qualities to the to the opening of notes and these long sustains. It really makes it feel like the orchestra is its own instrument. And on top of that, he was very interested in structure, right? He did not want music to be just kind of free-flowing um, randomly in that sense. But there was always a structure, and it's not that it was always this traditional Baroque or Mozart or Beethoven-like structure, but often inventing his own. Yes, one of the things about George Walker is the fact that he didn't leave anything to chance. Everything was calculated, premeditated, well thought out, and he was like that not only with regard to his musical compositions, but in his attire, the way he dressed, it was mm -hmm. he was always impeccable. His home... Everything was in its place. It was just absolutely uh, incredible. He, he was a very disciplined man. I had a very ordered demeanor, and he had a very ordered mind. And so nothing was left to chance. And I always was amazed by and would marvel at his ability 
to use polyrhythms to the rhythms would be all throughout the piece and it would be so difficult and I'm, I would think my god how did he do this you know and just know how it all would fit and sound and make it just work so naturally so he was really quite a, a wonder and polyrhythms when you're combining two rhythms that might not seemingly go together but um, they line up in the end or in some way further down in the music three against two is an easy one but that's kind of um kindergarten for george walker who was doing some pretty i mean <laughs> you listen to some of his music and it's like i'm glad i'm not counting this i'm glad i'm not playing that passage yes <laughs> and as you said racism was alive and well in his career and it still continues today in classical music. I've read that Walker pushed back strongly against the notion held in a lot of the last century that black composers are black first and American second. He considered himself, first of all, an American composer who was black. And he did not look at so much about being a, a black composer per se in that regard, though he would use black musical idioms. One of the things that he really had a difficult time with was the fact that oftentimes people would associate black music immediately with jazz. In George Walker's autobiography, uh, he talks about this a little bit because uh, he's dealing with racial stereotypes of musicians, you know. And uh, he says, and I quote, no matter how much traditional training in classical music a black artist has absorbed, there's the underlying suspicion for some that his native habitat is the realm of jazz. A New York music critic could find little to comment on after a performance of my cello sonata in uh, Wild Hall, other than to mention a brief jazzy section in the third movement. The few was beyond his cognizance. All too often, a less than subtle depreciation of the intellectual capacities and sensibilities of black persons are manifest. End quote. It's extraordinary what Walker was um, facing and pushing back against. I mean, putting all this work into this and to have uh, someone bemoan something as, as jazzy, of course, would be, um, would be quite an, um, infuriating. Yes, and he admits that there are all sorts of influences out here that people draw upon or or that could possibly affect a one, but he would really bristle if someone would were to make that comment with regard to one of his pieces because he really wasn't thinking about jazz. That was not one of the things that he, even though it was very popular when he was growing up, that's not one of the things to which he was exposed either in his home or in his uh, school training. We'll get into his life and career after those studies with Nadia Boulanger right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So what was his life like after finishing his studies with Nadia Boulanger in France, I'm wondering where did he settle down and or did he come back to Washington and how his career took shape over the following decades? Because 
a running theme here has been he grew up in this um, in this Jim Crow era and, and the, the the terrible things um, from that period to choosing go, to go to school based on which schools would accept black students. He does go to Curtis. He studies with Sirkin, but also I've from what I understand, Sirkin did not do anything to help. Um, George Walker further his career. He was able to get some big performances, I think, with the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, but these were one-offs. And it's one thing to get your break. It's another thing to get the callback. And it was it sounds like he was absolutely due a callback, but almost major orchestras thought, well, it was done. We've done our part. We're done. You know, move on to the next on to the next thing. So I'm wondering how all of that affects him as he goes into this career. Uh, decades-long career of teaching? Well, first of all, in terms of being um, a piano virtuoso, he was very much interested in doing that, and there was very little opportunity for Blacks, you know, have this type of career. Uh, It wasn't until much later, and oftentimes they weren't recognized. For example, George Walker, in an earlier trip to France in 1947, went to study piano with the famous piano pedagogue, Robert Casadissou. And on his passport, he had indicated, quote, concert pianist, in terms of uh, the occupation. But the passport, after the paperwork was submitted, was altered, and they crossed out concert pianist, and they put entertainer. Wow. Well, when he noticed it, George Walker demanded a reinstatement of the original phrase. But this, once again, will show you the mindset that was current at the time. Now, Walker ended up on his first, uh, I think it was a tour of uh, seven countries he was playing recitals. He started having problems, physical problems, and he found out he had developed ulcers. And it actually was his father, who was, once again was a medical doctor, that had diagnosed the situation. And so George Walker made this comment, as a matter of fact, to Jim Lehrer on a PBS's uh, news hour. And he said, and I quote, I became ill in the course of my first European tour. And I came back to the United States, realizing that I would be severely handicapped in attempting to pursue to appear when I wasn't physically at my best, end quote. So he knew that that was a great impediment. And so he still wanted to continue, you know, as well as he could, but the opportunities were not there. He had two concert managements, which were the leading managements uh, for the piano, one of which was a National Concert Artist, the other one was Columbia. Um, Columbia rejected him, basically, at first. He auditioned for them twice and to no avail. And then um, National Concert Artists accepted him without audition. And um, Walker once again said, you know, in an interview with the New York Times back in 1982, and I quote, those successes were meaningless because without the sustained effort effect of follow-up concerts, my career had no momentum. And because I was Black, I couldn't get either major or minor dates, end quote. And he goes on to say, he said he had fellow 
white students at Curtis, for example, when he was there, that, as he said, and then quote again, were assured of 25 to 30 concerts a season. But I was lucky if I got seven. It was like being excommunicated from society. I was unwanted. Wow. I mean, from his passport saying, you're not a concert pianist, you're not this artist, you are an entertainer, to seeing reviews putting down or, or trying to put him in a box saying, oh, this is jazzy, this isn't. This does not level, rise to the level of our classical music to this point where he's not able to get these callbacks. Other people, uh, white players, are getting guaranteed concerts and guaranteed callbacks, basically, while George Walker is this extraordinary prodigy and doing all these things and composing, but still struggling with all of this decades later after, after Jim Crow and after civil rights, too, as well, right? Yes. So he spends his time teaching, right? He's composing, but his the bulk of his career was spent teaching at um, several universities. Yes. I know he was at Peabody for a yes. while, um, also Rutgers for over 20 years, correct? Yes. He had two major teaching positions, one of which was at Smith College. He was there at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, between 1961 to 1968. When he came there... Apparently, there was some resentment uh, over him being there. Uh, some of it, of course, was racially motivated, but um, he also was considered to be a hot shot, and there was resentment there as well. Maybe uh, professional jealousy, uh, who knows. But anyway, he didn't have a lot of support there. When he came up for tenure, there was a battle. And so he won tenure finally, but he had a lot of people who were not pulling for him. And he felt that he had few allies at Smith and he was made to feel as an outsider. So he left Smith College in 1968. For one year, he taught at the University of Colorado. And then he was appointed at, and he was came in as a full professor at Rutgers University at the Newark campus, and he served there uh, as music chair, actually, for his tenure, uh, which was 1969 to 1992. Now, Rutgers, of course, was a step up in salary, but not in terms of the quality of music pupils because they were less advanced. Nonetheless, uh, he was there. It was not far from his home, and that was, you know, what he preferred. But the faculty wasn't particularly fond of him there. And there was some issue earlier when he tried to suggest to them that they hire his sister, Frances, as, you know, another piano faculty member. Uh, there was a lot of pushback on that. But the ultimate issue came there was regarding um, a forced retirement policy. They had a mandatory retirement age there at uh, Rutgers. And George Walker, when he reached it, felt that he was doing more than anyone else. And he was very much in his prime. And he wasn't ready to retire. He didn't want to. He thought he had a lot more to offer. But he was forced to retire anyway. And he was very bitter about that, I understand, yeah. uh, for a long time afterward. And interestingly enough, it, you know, it was after that period after his retirement, that he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1996. Did he enjoy teaching? I'm wondering, because he made the choice when he was younger, I'm going to pursue piano. Then 
I'm going to pursue composition, doing great at both of these things. Was teaching seen as a way to make that living and being able to compose as well? Or was it something he was already passionate about? Did he grow into it? How was that decision for him? I think it was something he grew into because uh, it was his father that had suggested that he, um, particularly after, you know, he started having these issues with his ulcer, his father suggested that he teach and that would be a means of making a living. Um, I think he grew into it. Uh, he, I understand, was very good at it. Uh, he was certainly very thorough. And I know just from having coached with him on some pieces, I uh, worked with him on a piece that he wrote for me for Oregon called Spires, which I premiered in 1998 at the National Convention for the American Guild of Organs, uh, at which he was present. And uh, also, I worked on his second piano sonata with him. He was an excellent teacher, very thorough, didn't miss a thing. Also very exacting. And so you knew that you needed to be thoroughly prepared when you went uh, before him. So that's the way he was. And uh, I thought he was a marvelous teacher. So in 1996, he wins the Pulitzer Prize for Music, the first black composer to do so for his work, Lilacs for Voice and Orchestra. This is a time in someone's career winning this kind of award, which would usually lead to a lot of new orchestra appearances, a lot of commissions as well. You can imagine orchestras, someone wins a Pulitzer, oftentimes they start receiving commissions, and then the orchestra premieres those work, and hey, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. It elevates him even more. But after winning this in 1996, it sounds like like none of that really happened for George Walker. Not really. I mean, he got more notoriety from the standpoint of being invited to give lectures and receiving awards and that sort of thing. But in terms of work coming in, no, it wasn't it didn't really make that much of a difference. And from what I've read about George Walker, I never met him. He seemed very stoic, something maybe he had gotten from his father in terms of all of these obstacles, all of these absurdities that he's that he's facing in his life and in, and in his career. Throughout all of it is just, it's almost as if he didn't see them necessarily as obstacles because he knew he would just keep going and push through and do his work no matter what was happening around him. So it seems like he was stoic in that in that nature, able to just keep pushing on. He was, and um, he had a goal, and to sort of quote or refer to that show that was on um, television a few years ago, uh, this documentary dealing with civil rights, he always would keep the eye on the prize. Mm -hmm. And so he was very focused, and he moved forward. Now, he had all sorts of situations to occur, many of which were ridiculous and others being unfortunate, but he persevered. Let's look at his piano sonata number two, that work you just mentioned. I love this one. Tell us about this. Well, this work was written in the late 50s. I think it is a fabulous work. My favorite sonatas are the first and second piano sonatas. He wrote five. But uh, the first and second are my favorite. I, I play them both. And uh, the second sonata is absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's rather compact, but it is full. And this is Walker, like I'd say in the 
1950s where he was, the music was still conservative compared to what you would hear 20 or 30 years later. But um, it is absolutely a masterwork. And uh, I recommend it to pianist friends that are not familiar with it, most definitely. It is quite compact. It definitely leaves you, it leaves you wanting more. It kind of starts and ends before you, uh, before you know it. Talking about how he wanted structure in music, that was very, very important, whether it was something traditional, like a fugue, or it was something that you created on your own that was important. And when you listen to this, I mean, when I listen to it, I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm just in- enjoying it. But reading about what he says about this second piano sonata, I mean, it's almost, I think he's playing 3D chess. He talks about the theoretical premise of the underlying structure, quote, is a consistent project of third relationships. The theme of the first movement is reflected in the ground base upon which six variations are built. I mean, he's doing so many things that you don't even know, but it builds, it does give this kind of foundation to the music that right, it keeps you engaged. It does not sound random at all to um, to kind of quote um, a lot of criticisms of, of more contemporary music. Exactly. I mean, it's this, this is a fabulous work, and uh, I would dare even venture to say it's probably his um, best of, in terms of his sonatas. I read in an interview he mentioned that when he would compose, he did not think in terms of, quote, creating beauty. He said he wanted to create, quote, elegant structures. I think this is important because if imagine if every movie you saw was trying to create beauty or trying to create beauty to one single standard of beauty and no other theme. I mean, it would be terrible. So listening to his music, it's not that, it's not that he's actively trying to create something not beautiful unless that's the intent, but rather he was creating this music that he needed to create and whether or not it was beautiful or any other description, that was the um, the byproduct of the music that he created. Oh, it just happens to sound this way. I'm wondering, you as a as a teacher, one of your courses is for non music majors, right? I teach a humanities course, a general humanities course uh, that is called Blacks in the Arts, which is a study of the achievements of blacks in the areas of music visual art, and theater. So when you are approaching this music with with students and you're talking about Walker and maybe this piano sonata number two um, in general or specifically, do you find that people or or listeners coming to this for the first time, do they appreciate it right away? Do they take multiple listens to gain something from it? I'm just wondering how you approach this kind of music with someone new or unfamiliar. Well, basically, what I do with with my students, I usually will introduce them uh, more to like the lyric for strings. That is something that is pretty much universal. And for students that are listening a lot of times these days and times to R and B and and hip hop and uh, gospel music and some some jazz it might be just a little off-center to start them off with the second sonata. So usually I will start them off with lyric for strings and just talk about George Walker and who he was and the accomplishments and mindset and try to also suggest that they develop that type of mindset themselves to 
be able to face the vicissitudes of life and to persevere and press forward. And so that's usually how I approach him with my with regard to the students. We should definitely be listening to more music by George Walker. That much is clear. And it sounds like something else we can take away from his life is this persistence and pushing forward that you mentioned. Yes, most definitely. I think that is one lesson that he teaches us all that is very important, just as much as anything that his music is is teaching us, uh, is that ability to move forward. What is a lasting memory you have of George Walker? I have several. I remember... (laughs) being in the car with him sometimes. And I remember I was dropping him off uh, after a concert to his hotel. And we sat in the car for about 40 minutes. And he was talking about his recollections of Rachmaninoff performing and Horowitz, you know, back in their early days. And I remember that. I remember the uh, waffles he served me one time when I went to visit him at his home there in Montclair, uh, New Jersey. I remember that. Uh, There's so many different things. I remember going to uh, lunch with him. I think it was at the Russian Tea Room there in New York. There's so many memories. I had a 25-year friendship with Walker, and uh, we had many conversations and, and visits, and he was just wonderful and a true inspiration and hero to me. So it's hard for me to just limit it to just one or even two. Oh, I can understand. In a conversation you and I had before, you mentioned these waffles and you always brightened up a little bit. I don't know if it was a conversation you had while making the waffles or watching him make the waffles, but did did George Walker have any waffle tips? It sounds like he was pretty good at making them to leave this impression on you. Well, he was. Uh, they're some of the best ones I've ever had, and uh, which made me wonder what else he cooked. I, and I would have loved to have had that opportunity. But if anything, it just shows me, I mean, he was very much a Renaissance man. He was good at anything he set his mind or hand to. Uh, he was just really good. And he was very thorough. He was just a phenomenon of a human being. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Terry, for joining me and talking about and teaching us all about the life and music of George Walker. Well, I thank you for having me. What a rare opportunity to hear not just about a great composer's life, but from someone who knew him so well, Dr. Terry from Howard University. I hope this has motivated you as much as it has me to listen to even more of Walker's music. I'll have links to performances on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And our podcast review today comes from Alex on Apple Podcasts, who gave us five stars and said, I'm really enjoying Classical Breakdown. I've been a listener for a while now, and this is my favorite podcast for classical music. I've learned so much. The episode on Robert Schumann, one of my favorites, triggered me to say a big thank you from across the pond in England. I really appreciate your expertise, hard work, and dedication you put into this super listening experience. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for that review. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. You can also send comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. (laughs) 